0: We're going to continue this morning with week two of a new series that Pastor Johnny kicked off last week entitled Game Changers. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, This morning I want us to look um, at a game-changing moment that I believe was catalytic, very catalytic, in the life of a leader of the early church, a guy by the name of Peter. You might have heard of him if you've been in the church for any number of years, Um, All of us, to pick a little bit up uh, from last week, all of us have had, if you've lived enough life and breathed enough air on this planet, you have had a game-changing, life-defining moment that's happened, and you can kind of look back, and it was a a watershed moment for you that was very pivotal, it was very, it was life-changing, it was forever formative, um, and, it, and it maybe even change the very trajectory of your life. Now, the reality of that statement is that that can happen in one of two arenas. That can happen with things that are good, and that can happen with things that are not so good. So, for example, it, it might be, hopefully, for you, when you became a follower of Christ, that was a game-changing moment. It changes everything about how we live, right? About what we worship, what we give our life to. What we engage and not engage. How we leverage everything for the advancement of the kingdom. That's game changing. For some of you, it's when you got accepted into the program. Or you got hired by the dream job that you were going after. But for some of you, it's when you got the letter of rejection. Or when you got fired from your dream job. That became a game changer. For some of you, it's when you got married. And for some of you, it's when your marriage ended in divorce. For some of you, it's when you celebrated the birth of a child into this world, and that was forever formative and changing for you. And for some of you, it's when you experienced the loss of a loved one. For some of you, it's when you gained a friendship. For others, it's when you lost that friendship. For some, it's when you received a good report from the doctor, and that changed how the way you lived. For some, it's when you received a bad report from the doctor, and it changed the way that you lived, and on and on we could list these experiences in our life. So this morning, I would love for you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it and turn to John's Gospel chapter 21 on your phone. You can type to that. We're going to be working through verses 1 through 19, and so what I would like to do before we get into the passage is define a couple of things, give some context, and lay Um, some tracks for us to be able to run on together. And here's where we're going this morning. Here's the game-changing word that we're going to focus on. It's the word restoration and how the gospel restores our lives. So when I use the word restore, it's a word that we're all familiar with because we restore all kinds of things, planes, trains, automobiles, that I'd go over you a little bit, right? That's dating me. We restore houses. Uh, my family and I lived in Ardmore for about four years. And we had a 1925 house that, for the most part, was being restored and got restored before we sold it. Um, we restore all kinds of things. I just got back from the West Coast um, from participating in a conference out there, and it's, an, it's a very, very affluent city. There's a lot of money there. And I was a witness to many people walking around that had done many things to their bodies to try to restore them back to their original beauty before gravity took its effect. (laughs) Very interesting city. Glad you guys are awake. Well, restoration is, is also a very big part of the gospel narrative. And the more I sat in this passage, the more... Uh, I studied it, the more I preached the passage to myself, the more I see this passage this morning as potential to be really good news for us, really good news for us. And here's why. The longer you're a Christian, the more Christians I meet that are living self-defeated and self-deflated lives. They wake up every day and they live in the bad news. They don't live in the good news. The good news uh, has become old news in their life. There's many Christians that you encounter that are feeling just fatigued in their walk with the Lord. They maybe even feel sidelined or even disqualified. And so they wake up and they live day in and day out in the death of Jesus, in the tomb of Jesus, but rarely live and experience the resurrection power of Jesus, And so for many of us, in the context, if you were raised in the South, which they refer to as Bible Belt South, which really doesn't exist anymore, many of us came into our understanding of the gospel in a very narrow, and I would say anemic and even incomplete way. And let me explain what I mean by that. We understood the gospel as was taught to us as having basically three things. God created everything and it was really good. Adam and Eve came along, they messed that all up. They were disobedient. And somehow their disobedience ruined and wrecked what God had set in motion. And their disobedience and sin was birthed in every other person, which explains why say bad things, do bad things, uh, act in bad ways and have unhealthy motivations. So that's the fall. And then we look to Jesus as redemption. Well, I need Jesus to come save me from all the bad things I've done. So that when I die, I can go to heaven. Well, there's truth in there, but it's a very incomplete. So what I like to do is is zoom out. Because if you are left with just that understanding of the gospel, it would produce in you, as some say, a vampire Christianity. Which says, Jesus, thank you for a little bit of your blood. I don't care to be your disciple in this life, and I'll see you in heaven when I die. So we need Jesus for salvation to save us, but we don't need Jesus for transformation of my everyday life. I've got that taken care of, Lord. I'll see you when I get there. But did you know that the gospel narrative actually doesn't start with creation? It starts with who? God. In the beginning, what? God. He's the alpha, the omega, the author, the Perfector, the finisher of our faith. So when we start with God, what happens is we allow ourselves to, to see ourselves rather in light of who God is. That's really important because that fosters in you a God-centered theology, which by the way is really healthy. But when we start with me and what God does for me and what I can get out of God in heaven when I die and thank you very much. Then we begin to define God and see God in light of who we are. That then produces a man-centered theology, which is really not good. And it has terrible implications for the way we live our lives and relate to God. In particular, we'll see how that plays out in this passage. So it starts with God. Then it goes to creation. He creates Adam and Eve to, in his image to know him, to love him, and to represent him. Then the fall happens. And Adam and Eve decide to return the favor and create God in their image. And they fall away from the holy and happy state. And the seed of sin is given to all of humanity forevermore. But all the Old Testament is pointing to a time when Jesus would come, redemption. Where Jesus would reconcile us as the Messiah, the Son of God, back to a holy father. How does he do that? Through his sinless life. The life he lives perfectly that we can't through his substitutionary death, meaning he dies in our place. Jesus gets what I deserve. And through his bodily resurrection to conquer sin, death, and hell. And it means God's righteous because he is righteous. He's holy. Justice and wrath against sin falls on Jesus instead of me. And that's the beauty of what Jesus gives me when I place faith in him. He gives me his his righteousness, he gets my sin. And here's how I'll explain it to my friends who haven't been raised in the church or don't know about Christianity. As we get to this conversation, it means this. And this is really the bottom line. It means that either Jesus pays for our sin in this life through repentance and faith in him, or we reject that message and we pay in the life to come. And that's what hangs in the balance, my friends for our city and all the people that you know. So that's redemption. How does he do it? Through a bloody cross. Why does he do it? Because of God's great love for us. And then comes the word that we're centering in on today called restoration. That when... He saves us, Jesus, he saves all of us. That when he forgives our sins, he forgives all of our sins. And the process of restoration, transformation begins as Jesus begins to heal the shattered image that we have of ourselves and the shattered lives that we live. He wants to restore all aspects of our life. And then finally, in the gospel narrative, it's a beautiful word called consummation, or you could say glorification, that one day, One day he will make everything new in his presence. So it's a picture of the gospel that Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. Jesus is saving us from the power of sin in this life. And one day we will be free from the presence of sin when we are with him. Isn't that good news? It's really good news. So John writes this gospel account about two decades roughly After Peter is killed, he's martyred in Rome in roughly A.D. AD 67. So here's the unique perspective John had. John could look back onto Peter's life and see that Peter demonstrated by the way that he lived his life the reality of a restored life. This is a really powerful passage. So I'm going to read the passage in its entirety. You can follow along. I'm going to pray. we're going to jump in, unpack a couple of things um, for us. John chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Then Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the incredible gift of your word. I pray that we as a people would submit ourselves to the full authority of what you say is true May your word wash over us, may the Holy Spirit revive our hearts, restore our hearts to once again set us on mission for that which matters the most. So Father, speak and move and work in the lives of your people in ways that only you can do. We give you the glory for all of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's talk about a younger Peter. Here's a couple of observations. Peter was a guy who liked to go first. So I live in Davie County, and he's what we refer to as a y'all watch this kind of guy, right? <laughs> instead of, instead of ready, aim fire, Peter was fire ready, aim a lot of times. A lot of times Peter's passion would outrun his wisdom, and there were many times Peter outpunted his coverage. And found himself alone in the backfield. So here's a few things that Peter was first at. He was the first disciple to be called by Jesus. He was the first disciple to make a confession about who Jesus really was. The son of God. The Messiah. Emmanuel. He was the first disciple to rebuke Jesus. When he he tells Jesus, no, 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 no. no! It can't end in the cross for you. That's not how it's going to end, Jesus which Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. Peter was the first guy to cut off a guy's ear with a glorified fishing knife. Peter was also the first guy to go into the empty tomb after losing a foot race with John to the tomb. So by the time we get to the text that I just read, there is a lot of shame in Peter's life. Now, where does the shame in Peter's life Come from? Well, all four gospel accounts tell us it's Peter's denial of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells Peter that before the sun comes up, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Jesus is arrested, and Peter follows Jesus from a distance. And three times, Peter is asked, Hey, aren't you with him? Nope. Are you sure you're not with him? I have no idea who that Jesus is. Then the third time happens. No, I think you're with him because you talk like him, you walk like him, and you dress like him. I think you're with him. And Peter's like, man, I have no idea who that man is. And at that moment, the rooster crows. Now, in Luke's account of this, it says in that moment, Jesus and Peter lock eyes with one another. Imagine that. Imagine the divine stare. Here's an imperfect example of that. When you were a kid and you got caught doing something really bad, and instead of getting the spanking, your mama gave you the stink eye, man, it burned a hole right through you. You just want to crawl into fetal position and just die because it's less painful than what's coming. (laughs) What was Peter's great shame? Peter's great shame is that he denies the Son of God. You're like, well, how could the all-in Peter do that? He walked with him. He was beside him for three-plus years. Well, this gets real personal real quick for all of us because this is where many of us are, even on a day-in and day-out basis, that we deny Jesus. And we deny him to a watching world primarily by not speaking up. For what is true by not standing up for what is right and for not showing up for the sake of our faith and some of us like Peter are walking around and we are carrying shame and failure and regret and condemnation and here's here's how this plays out let me let me walk us through a little bit of, of a game that we play. So I'm going to talk to the Christians. I'm one and many of you are one. If you're not a Christian, you get to watch the Christians uh, squirm for just a moment. So I'm also going to use some Christian language. So if you haven't ever been raised in the church and you don't know anything about the Bible, I'm going to define these terms for you because Christians are really good at making up their own vocabulary. We love to do that. It's called Christianese and we use all these words. And as bad as that is, pastors are even worse. My wife is always telling me, I don't understand anything you're saying. Would you just please go explain it on the whiteboard, which she's actually mocking me because I like a whiteboard. That's what pastors do. (laughs) So I'm going to have a little bit of a, at the Plitt household, our favorite movie is Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah? Okay. I mean, you're my people. So in the movie, Napoleon asks the farmer, do chickens have large talons? And the farmer replies, I don't understand a word you just said. So I'm going to explain some things here. <laughs> some of you, some of you were saved at a younger age. That's just Christian language for you recognize your need for Jesus. You repented of your sin, place faith in Jesus. You were saved at a, at a younger age, maybe on a mission trip, Maybe at a Christian camp, maybe at a Christian concert where Chris Tomlin, big Christian artist, was singing to you. The spotlight was on you and you just had this moment with him, right? Or maybe it was in in a worship gathering similar to this and you left and you were ready to charge hell with a water pistol. You had a transfiguration moment. That just simply means mountaintop. Or you rededicated your life to the Lord. That simply means you didn't think the first time took, so you did it again, and you weren't sure about that one. You just kept going like a broken record into hopefully one of these takes, and you rededicated your life to the Lord. You gave your life to the Lord. You became a Christian. You became born again. And here's what we say in those moments: Some of us, "I'm never going to sin again. <laughs> I'm going to become a missionary." I'm going to go to a faraway land. I'm going to become a pastor. I'm going to drop everything. And I'm going to go to seminary. I'm going to share the gospel with every single person that I encounter every single day. I'll never do that again. This time is going to be different. And in the theology of Britney Spears, oops, I did it again, comes crashing in. And you say, I blew it. I vowed to never do that. I went back on my word. I promised And, but, I used to be about the things of God. But now there's a wall of shame and regret and embarrassment that is there. Sound familiar? If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is how you might be wrongly thinking about God. This is some of my own wrong thinking I'm sharing with you before I became a Christian. God could never, ever forgive me. I I can't even forgive myself. I'm totaled. I'm beyond repair. I'm in too deep. I'm too damaged. God could never use someone like me. And here's what I want you to hear very clearly. On the cross, Christ overcame what overwhelms you. Christ overcame what overwhelms you. And so for both groups, Christian and non-Christian, do you think your sin, your failure, your regret before a holy God, namely what you have done or what has been done to you and or both, is too big for the cross of Christ? Absolutely not. Jesus dies For our failure and our shame and all of those things that has been put to death so that I can no longer say I can't forgive myself. Because at the foot of the cross, we lose our right to forgive ourselves because Christ already forgave us. We also lose the right to not forgive others. Why? Because Christ forgave me, a sinner, a wretched, wretched sinner. And here's the reality, here's the truth. No one is beyond hope. No one is beyond God's reach. No one is beyond God's grace. I just think we lose sight of that. Paul Tripp, who um, is an incredible author and pastor, he says this. He can defeat what you can't. Talking about Jesus. Jesus and he intends these troubles to not be enemies that finish you but tools of grace that transform you Isn't that good you see we don't fight for our freedom for our victory for our acceptance that's called religion we fight from our victory And we fight from our freedom that Christ has already accomplished for us 2,000 years ago. That's called the gospel. And how you navigate that depends on how you live your day in and day out kinds of lives. So what does Peter do to manage his shame? Well, verse 3 tells us he decides to go fishing. Now, that's not a bad way to manage your shame, right? I'm going to go fishing, to which the other disciples respond, we'll go with you. And he goes fishing, and he doesn't catch anything, absolutely nothing. You ever been on one of those fishing trips? Yes. Those are sanctifying moments for me. Now, is it a coincidence that he doesn't catch anything? Nope. There's no coincidence in, in God's economy. You see, there's there's not a particle of dust floating in this room that won't land apart from God knowing about it. Nothing happens outside of his rule and reign, his providential control. And so here's what Jesus does. Jesus shows up on the beach and he says to the guys in the boat, throw the net on the other side. To which, you know, maybe if you're on the boat, you're thinking, well, Jesus, you're a carpenter. What do you really know about fishing? But they do it. And you see the yield of what that brings in. Now, here's the observation for me in this. Isn't it interesting in these moments of failure and shame, how we love to run back to the very things that Jesus saved us from and called us out of? And we have our own version of fishing. For some, as I run to the bottle... For some, I run to the, to the drug of choice. For some, I run to an unhealthy relationship. For some, I run to my computer and what I can do in secret as I click and download whatever it is that's on there. For some of us, it can be even good things the pursuit of, I'm going to make more money, have more power. I'm going to just, we love to run to things to help us cope. I love Proverbs 26, 11, because I think it just beautifully, simplistically captures like a dog that returns to its vomit is like a fool who repeats his folly. You see, in our failure and in our sin and in our shame, we love to run back to the things that are comfortable, safe, and familiar. Why? It gives us temporary relief. Whew. And we say, I'll never do that again. And then we do it again. And then we say, what is wrong with me. And so we find this safe place to hide and manage our shame. So where does that come from? It's not a new thing, it's an old thing. So if you go back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin against God, before sin, they're naked and unashamed. That's a glorious state to be in with your wife. When they sin, all of a sudden, they're aware of their nakedness. And they are what? Ashamed. And they hide. And they cover. And so God comes onto the scene. He says, hey, Adam, where are you? Now, is this a, a temporary, momentary lapse of God's sovereign control? Did he really not know where Adam was? Was it like when your kid was like really young and you play hide-and-go-seek in the house, they went to the corner and they closed their eyes, they did like this, and they thought, and they were standing in the middle of the floor, but they thought because their eyes were closed, you couldn't see them? Oh, that's really good, son. Good job. Nobody would ever find you there. No. God knew where he was. He calls To Adam in the way that Jesus calls to Peter why because God wants us to acknowledge that we're hiding he wants us to acknowledge we're hiding I mean like really who are we kidding like God is all-powerful all-knowing all-seeing ever-present all-wise and some of us have have gotten really 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 good at hiding and managing our shame And here's how it manifests itself in kind of one of two ways. You either give into the idol of performance and you create like busyness all around you. And this is how it can play out for Christians. You know what? I'm not a part of one community group or small group. I'm a part of five. I have one every night of the week. I go to both services on Sunday. I volunteer for every Bible study across the city. You just fill your life up. Or the other way it goes is you just get really good at pretending. And Christians have all these great, like, cute coffee mugs, bumper sticker, Pat Reese Sunday School responses that say, hey, man, how how are you doing? Oh, man, the Lord is so good. He has blessed me. Man, I'm better than I deserve. We have all these responses. And inside, you're a train wreck. And you are up to your eyeballs in dysfunction. And did you know I'm going to let you in on a little bit of a secret? Pastoring church for a lot of years. Do you know one of the best places for Christians to hide is? In the church. It's so important that you have people who know your life, who aren't impressed with you, who aren't afraid of you, and who are willing to ask the questions you're not, that you don't want to be asked. It's so important. So important we all have that in our life. So here's the truth and the observation. Jesus, as he shows up on the beach, it's simply a picture of this. Jesus doesn't let us go. Jesus doesn't let us go. In the midst of our shame and our failure and in what Peter had done denying him, Jesus shows up, he makes them breakfast, and he says, let's eat together. Translation, let's have some sushi. I love this. He doesn't just let us go. How many examples all throughout Scripture do we see from Jonah to others, right? How about if, you have a, if you're a parent and you have multiple children or even one child, and your child takes off in a, in a sprint heading toward five points intersection at rush hour. Do you just sit back and go, man, this is going to be a great lesson for them. Um, this is, this is going to teach them to never do that. And if something horrific happens, we have two or three more children, it's, it'll be all good. No, you grab that child. You disrupt what they're doing in the direction they're heading. You might discipline that child. You might have to even hurt their feelings and wound their egos to pull them back. And I believe this is an incredible window into the deep love of our heavenly father for his wayward and rebellious children. It's an incredible picture of his love. Then Jesus does something amazing in this text. He recreates the moment of Peter's calling and the moment of his failure. And he uses two ordinary things, items, to remind Peter of this. And here's the first one he uses fishing. When was the first time Jesus experienced Peter in a fishing environment? It's when Jesus showed up the first time and said, hey, I want you to drop your nets. You're not going to fish for fish anymore. I want you to become a fisher of men. I want you to follow me. So he's recreating that moment again, right? Here's the second one, a charcoal fire. Very interesting that in the Bible, this particular kind of fire is only mentioned twice, both times in John's gospel. Where's the first time a charcoal fire is mentioned? It's when P, uh, when Jesus is arrested, Peter is following him, and he's warming himself beside a charcoal fire when he denies him. He's recreating a moment for Peter. Now notice when the disciples come to the seashore or to the beach, there's a fire going and there's fish already on it. You know what it means? It means that Jesus doesn't need what you are bringing but he invites you anyway. And in that moment, it's the moment of restoration. I love you, I'm here for you. My love never fails for you, Peter. But Peter, we gotta talk about this. And then he calls him Simon son of John, full name. He does this about four other times in other places in the Gospels. And after every time using his full name, it was usually to drive a really big, heavy truth, right? So it's like in your childhood when you did something bad. See, you guys are getting a real good picture. I was a terrible kid. When you did something bad and your mom or your dad, they called you by your, first, or your full name, Charles Williams Plitt Jr. Man, you know it, the heat was coming. It was going to be bad. He calls him Simon, son of John, and he asks him three times, do you love me? Why is he doing this? Is he being mean? Is he kind of holding it over Peter's head of like, this is I told you so moment? No, because Peter had denied Jesus three times. Jesus is giving Peter the opportunity to affirm his love for him three times. And biblical scholars kind of go back and forth. Do you love me more than these? What these can refer to? Some scholars say these refers to the disciples. Do you love me more than the disciples? Some scholars say it's the fishing nets and the boat and the lifestyle and all the material things. Do you love me more than these things? Personally, I believe it's referring to both of them at some level. Do you love me more than these? I called you away from these things and maybe even some of these relationships so that you could become a fisher of men. Do you know what Jesus is getting at right here? And this is why I love the gospel. The gospel has nothing to do with the outside. It's all about the transformation of the heart that changes everything on the outside. And what Jesus is driving here is he's asking Peter, what do you treasure most, Peter? In the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that Jesus preaches is where your treasure is. That's where your heart is. So here's what he's doing. He's pulling Peter back to himself and back to the mission. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Otherwise, Peter is left living every single day feeling like a loser and a failure. Imagine for the rest of his life walking around earth and everybody knows, oh, that's Peter. That's the guy who was all in, who, who bailed on Jesus, who denied him. How about the disciple Thomas? What's he get known for? Doubting Thomas, right? I know there's, there's restoration in that, but like, you know, Peter is, is being restored back to something. And here's what it is. Jesus reminding Peter that the same relationship that we had in the beginning is still true for today. It's still true for today. The door is open. And my friends, some of you need to hear that. So, how then does Jesus respond to Peter? Did Jesus yell at him like a grumpy old man who's hard of hearing? (laughs) Did he stand on the beach and, and and curse and berate and belittle Peter? No. He restores him gently. He makes them breakfast, then he sits down with them and he eats with his friends. And I believe that that Jesus is reminding us of a really important truth that he said are the two most important truths that we as followers of Christ can live by. It's the great commandment, love God and be a lover of others. And he's challenging Peter in this moment of restoration to give evidence of his belief and love of Christ through loving Jesus and through feeding his sheep. And you know the interesting thing? When you turn in your Bible and you read later in First and Second Peter, Peter is an older, seasoned pastor, and we read exactly that later in his life before he is killed. Jesus demonstrated with Peter that I love you, I pursue you. I want to eat with you. I want to restore you and I want to set you free. And he heals the wound. And then he says, Peter, follow me. So, how does Peter respond to Jesus? Well, two places in particular here in verse seven is the acknowledgement of, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And, and then in the restoration, through the, the three questions of restoration, Peter is saying, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. And Jesus is saying, look, Peter, your life is mine. I, I have a whole new life for you. I want you to become a fisher of men. And on the boat, there's this beautiful conversation and exchange happening between John and Peter, who were very close. And John's like, Peter, it's Jesus. It's the Lord, and guess what? He is calling for you. Peter, the door is still open. So what does Peter do? How does he respond? And impetuous Peter, he jumps in the water, and he starts swimming towards shore to get to Jesus, which I believe probably at some point in time, this is just my best guess, probably the boat came rowing by, and they were like, Peter, if you'd just stayed in the boat, we'd have gotten there a whole lot quicker. Peter responds in the right way. And my prayer is that that would be your response today. And lastly, God's love brings us to a mission. God's love brings us to a mission. And he says to Peter, I want you to give your life to shepherding my flock. And it's a picture here that the gospel is not simply an evacuation plan, but rather the gospel is an invasion plan. It's to go forth to every man, woman, and child. We are his ambassadors carrying his message of good news. And when you back up earlier in John's gospel, chapter 10, Jesus talks about, I am the good shepherd. And then he says that there are sheep that are not of this fold. There's sheep that are out there. Defenseless animals, nature's victims who will die quickly without a shepherd. And it's a reminder for us this morning that that is the world that we are called to, family of God. A world that does not largely know where they are going and where they are heading. And they are riddled with shame and guilt and condemnation and are just self-medicating their lives with all kinds of things to numb the pain. And when you look out into our city and into our communities, into our nation and to the ends of the earth, it is hemorrhaging hemorrhaging with people. And Jesus is saying, I need my people to shepherd and to feed my flock. Will you be one of them? Well, in closing, do you know what else Peter was the first to do after Jesus ascended back into heaven after 40 days? Well, because of the game-changing moment, the gospel of restoration the apostle Peter was the first apostle to take the gospel message to the Gentiles. Non-Jewish people. You read about that in the book of Acts. The sheep not of this fold. Isn't that incredible? Jesus does not want us to sit in our sin, and our shame, and our failure, and our regret, and be defined by this. He desires today, this moment, This morning, in this place, he desires to restore us, to set us on a mission, to bring the good news to every man, woman, and child that are drowning and dying all around.